John 1, verses 35 to 51. And if you need a physical Bible, you can just raise your hand and one of the ushers will be around to hand that to you. Right. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, who will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you and I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He, he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Amen. Well, thank you, Christina. Excited about summer kids camp coming up. Lots of fun opportunities in that. Um, hey, uh, whenever I wake up on a day like this and I read in my feed that we are experiencing atmospheric rivers, I'm reminded how awesome our trailer team is. Can we thank the guys who, are, who drive... As a portable church, I'm, I'm usually there at our HQ, which is where we also store our trailers, and I'm going over the sermon in a dry space as the rain is melting down, so we're just so grateful for you guys. Uh, I think Kelvin was doing it today. Thank you, Kelvin. We love you. Appreciate you. Uh, well, today, as, as Christina mentioned, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John, uh, a series we are calling Light of the World. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, it's a major theme of the Gospel of John. And uh, John really comes out the gate just uh, stating as such. He says in, back in verse 4, if you were here, you remember this from last week. In him, that is Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all, uh, of all mankind. So Jesus is the light of the world. Well, what we find today as we begin to get into Jesus' life and ministry, so last week was the prologue, this week we start to get into his actual life and, and ministry, we come to see that to follow Jesus means to, to help others find and follow him as well. So in other words, when we come to put our faith in Jesus, we become lights of the light of the world. Uh, it's just intrinsically, immediately part of what it means to be a follower. We are lights of the light of the world. Now the idea of sharing our faith, particularly in a place like the Silicon Valley, can seem uh, a little daunting, maybe a little nerve-wracking. I imagine if you're here today and uh, you are uh, not a follower of Jesus, perhaps you don't have the best of connotations when it comes to the idea of Christians sharing their faith. Maybe you've experienced or thought of it as Christians kind of Bible thumping or, or forced proselytizing. 
that kind of idea. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, maybe the sense of uneasiness for you is related to fear or maybe even a sense of guilt or obligation. But the reality is that doesn't need to be the case. I remember a conversation I got to have or at least be a part of uh, with two friends of mine. Uh, One friend was a Christian. The other friend was not a Christian. And this topic of Christians sharing their faith came up. And I was just kind of like a fly on the wall. It was kind of a fun, fun little conversation to listen in on. And my Christian buddy was saying to my non-Christian buddy, he's like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that because I don't want to uh, uh, potentially offend somebody. Like, I feel like in our culture it could come across and be received in, in a wrong way. To which my non-Christian friend said, are you kidding me? Like, if you, if you believe something so strongly and something, so, something is so important to you as that, I, for one, would at least want you to share that with me. In fact, if you're not sharing that with me, it's like, you're holding out. Like, do you care about me? And, I, and he added, it's worth mentioning, just, just don't be weird about it or a jerk about it as you share your faith. And I remember uh, watching the expression on my Christian friend's uh, face. He had this kind of sense of like, oh, oh, okay, I could do that. It's what makes this text in front of us so incredibly valuable. We see that these first followers of Jesus, these first disciples immediately begin to share their faith, share, share Christ in a way that is just completely just natural, just really straightforward, not awkward. And so we're going to learn today what it means for Christians to share their faith. We're going to consider how if, if Jesus is the light of the world, how are we to be lights of the light? So let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into this. Father, we, so, so many of us know this is central to uh, the calling of, of being Christian, the mission of what it means to be uh, your church, let alone in a place like the Silicon Valley. And Father, we confess that we often don't uh, lean into this as much as we ought. And frankly, often for actually, you know, the wrong reasons, missing out. And, uh, and so Father, would you help us today, uh, would you through your word speak to us through the power of your spirit to help us understand how we can be lights to your light, the light of the world. And and we pray this to be true of us as individuals. We pray this to be true of us as a church. Uh, we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how are we to be lights of the light of the world? Uh, we're going to break this down in two ways in terms of the outline. We're going to consider our role in this, our role in this, and then we're going to consider God's role. Okay, so how, how are we to be lights of the, uh, of, of the light? First, let's consider our role. Um, a way to break down this text is to see it really in three groupings or three pairings of people who are following Jesus, helping others follow Jesus, okay? So one pairing is you have John the Baptist, whom we met a little bit last week, uh, who was out there forerunning Jesus, telling people the way to Christ, who had himself two, he had a a number of disciples, two of of his own disciples, a guy named Andrew, another guy who's just unnamed, that when John the Baptist said the words, behold, the Lamb of God, two of his own disciples, Andrew and this other guy, just decided, that sounds cool, I'm going to go follow him. And, you know, it shows a lot of maturity on John's part when he's like, yeah, go ahead and follow Jesus. You don't have to follow me anymore. I'm not bitter about that. Uh, And it makes sense because John has been just really hyping Jesus all along. I mean, in some senses, you'd think John would be like, of course you want to go follow this guy. He's the light of the world, not me. So John helps Andrew and this other unnamed disciple follow Jesus. And then Andrew, in turn, goes and helps his brother Simon Peter follow Jesus. He says, we've found the Messiah. And that's enough for Peter to go, okay, I'm intrigued. Let me check this guy out. And then the last little pairing we have is uh, Philip, whom Jesus directly calls. Philip goes and finds 
Nathaniel and helps him follow Jesus. Okay, so we have, we have all these pairings of, of people who've put their faith in Jesus and immediately going and sharing Jesus, helping others find and follow Jesus themselves, which we have to let sink in for a second because here we are just in the very first part of John's gospel. We have hardly heard a word from Jesus yet. We've, we've had a prologue about him, and now we start to hear just a few words from him. And yet already we see right off the bat to follow Jesus means to help others find and follow him. It's just part of the deal. We are lights of the light of the world. So let's consider our role and learn some things from, from these guys. Number one, to be a light of the light of the world means to bring people. It means to bring people to Jesus. It's just, just exceedingly clear from this text. So for in this instance with Andrew and Peter, you see in verse 40, Andrew, Simon, brother's, uh, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Okay, and then if you look at Philip with Nathaniel, Philip found Nathaniel, verse 45, and told him, we have found the one Moses is written about. So Quite literally, these guys, Andrew and Philip, are bringing their brother, their friends to Christ. They are literally bringing their friends to Christ. And, you know, in, in a similar way, that's what we can do as part of our role in being the light of the light of the world. It's quite literally bring people. I have a pastor mentor slash friend, excuse me, <coughs> uh, who uh, describes how essentially when you look at the scriptures just kind of holistically, there are essentially about six ways that Christians can share their faith, can share Jesus, can share the gospel. There's, there's six approaches, he calls them. Number one, you can call it the cold turkey approach. Uh, kind of is what it sounds like, right? It's like you don't know anybody uh, from Adam, but you just start telling them about Jesus. He said the thing we need to understand about the cold turkey approach, particularly Christians who've been going to church for a long time, is this approach is often the one held up as really the model, the way to share your faith with others. He said the reason for that is you'll often hear the, the preacher up on stage or the conference speaker or whatever using examples like, well, on my flight out here to this conference to tell you about these things, I, sat, I had a middle seat in the flight, and, you know, I was able to convert the guy next to me on the way over uh, before we even got, uh, you know, off the runway. And before we made altitude, I was well working, you know, on this next guy to help him find you. You know what I mean? Like, that's often the examples that are given. And, hey, if that's your gift, the Bible calls that the gift of evangelism, by the way, that's wonderful. Use that. Lean into that. But the fact of the matter is that's not all of us. Now, sometimes God, even if, even if that's not you or your natural gifting, he sometimes calls you and me to do that anyways, and he's Lord, so we ought to follow him in that. But the point is, the wisdom of my uh, pastor mentor friend says, this is just one of the ways that Christians can share their faith, the cold turkey approach. And real quickly before I move on, I want to share, it's not, I don't want to think of it in just negative light because um, I have a buddy uh, who I was good friends with when I was back uh, as an undergrad at UC Berkeley. And he used to, at UC Berkeley, there on Sproul Plaza, just go up, cold turkey, tell people about Jesus. And I remember I, he would even say, Dave, you want to go do that with me? I'm like, I don't know. You're going to do the talking? Sure. And I'd go hang out with him. And we'd be in these conversations with Berkeley students, okay, where we hadn't known them from Adam. And all of a sudden, we're talking about Jesus. And it's like, how are we talking about Jesus all of a sudden? And how is this individual responding to my buddy positive, positively? You know what I mean? It's like, that's insane. He had a gift. 
You know, he really, he, he was able to do that. If that's you, that's wonderful. Lean into that. If God's calling you to do that, even if it's not your gift, that's wonderful. Lean into that. But that's just one of the approaches that we see biblically of how Christians are to share their faith. The cold turkey. Number two, cold turkey approach. Number two is the testimonial approach. Incidentally, we see this in our text as Philip and, and Andrew kind of share from their own life relationally about Jesus with Peter and with, with Nathaniel. Relational, the relational approach is sharing what God has done in your own life. It's just, it's just as opportunities come up, you're able, to, you're able to kind of speak to what God has done in your life and the different ways that he's kind of moved. And, you know, if, you have, if, if the opportunity comes up where somebody says something like, wow, it's incredible, your accomplishment, uh, you get to say, you can say something like, wow, yeah, yeah, I mean, I really just see that as God answering a prayer. Or, or whatever it might be, just pointing to the Lord. I realize some of you are probably neck twitching right now because I skipped one. I skipped around. Uh, slide seam, thank you so much. I said relational is number two. There's also another that I'm going to say, and this is going to really mess everything up. I'm going to talk now about testimonial. Okay, <laughs> We'll just do that. Testimonial is similar to relational, which is why in my head I kind of went there. Um, that's kind of testifying to what God is doing, okay? Testifying is more, something comes up, you can say, hey, yeah, I really see that as God working in my life. The relational one, which I'll go ahead and skip when we get there, is more as opportunities come up in relationship with friends, coworkers, and the like, you're able to just kind of naturally point people to Jesus. Another one, third out of six that I've already covered four now of, uh, is intellectual. <laughs> the intellectual approach. Um, the intellectual approach you could see in Acts 17. For those of you guys who know the story of Paul going to Athens and speaking on what's known as Mars Hill, which is the marketplace area where the philosophers in the day and the, really, the leading thinkers would debate ideas. Paul shows up and intellectually engaged with them about the gospel. Some of you have a real heart for that. You've got the theology, you've got the doctrine, you've got the apologetic answers that you can kind of engage with people. That's awesome. If that's you, lean into that. That's one of the passion areas we have, by the way, as, as a church here, because a lot of people in this area think that Christians go to church on Sunday and just turn off their brains. We don't believe that's so. God calls us to love them with, love with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So, okay, intellectual is an, an approach. Uh, number four, there's the service approach. Uh, that's really living out the gospel through serving other people, okay? Uh, as I think of this one, I'm often reminded of a number of you in this church who really have the gift of just serving people. Or maybe the gift is coupled with hospitality or connecting other people to others, and, and that is a tremendous gift. We see that all throughout the scriptures. There's times where women are called out in terms of them preparing homes and, and spaces for the crowds to meet with Jesus. We're told of times where the men went ahead to prepare a space and a meal for Jesus to have ministry in certain places. Serving others is setting the table, if you will, so that people can hear about Jesus. In fact, many people have come to faith through current because of the gifts that many of you have used to set the table so that we can have this space set up and, and be able to worship the Lord and point others to him, okay? I already talked about the relational approach. Uh, and then finally, we see the invitational approach in Scripture, which is also in our text. The invitational pro approach is just that. It's inviting people. It's bringing people along. In, in today's terms, that most easily applies to bringing people to church. Somebody who doesn't have a church home, bringing them out to current, for instance, so that they can... As Jesus says, and as uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, they can come and see. 
We want to be a church that's where, where people can come and see. If you're here, you've never, you've never, you, you've, you're checking out the claims of Jesus. We hope Current can be a place where you can come and see what Jesus is all about, what following him in community means and looks like. And our opportunity in that as a church is to bring people. Uh, one of the ways we like to think of it is we can, we can control the invitation but even as we don't necessarily control the outcome of somebody coming. So let's just focus on controlling the invitation. Are there people that we can invite? Are people we can, we can potentially bring to hear about Jesus, where they can come and see that, that he is good? And, you know, we just have a wonderful opportunity in front of us as a church in that as we're going to launch a second gathering on March 3rd, there's just something about a momentous occasion that everybody kind of coming together, pulling together, a lot, builds energy and excitement where we're just hoping, we're praying that we can all think about inviting a person or two that we could, if the Lord so moves in their lives, bring them on that day. We're going to throw a party, we're going to make it fun, but all, the, all in the hopes that people can come and see Jesus and, and his love for them. We want to be a come and see church. We want to be able to invite people into that. And there's plenty of opportunities in front of us for, in, in, in front of us for that. And that's one of the ways that we help people find and follow Jesus. We are lights of the light. You know, as a quick corollary before we move on, this idea of bringing others to Christ, uh, it's important to understand that the only way we can bring someone to Christ is if we're first in relationship with them. Wouldn't you say? And the reason why, you know, Andrew knew this guy and Philip knew Nathaniel and, and all the rest of it, they were in relationship. And the reason why I highlight this is it's really easy, particularly in the American church, for folks as they come to faith or are in the faith following God, to essentially almost exclusively have relationships only within the church. But remember, Christian brothers and sisters, that we are lights of the light of the world. We are called to be in the world, pointing people to Jesus and and so we need to be in relationship with each other. Incidentally, there's a wonderful opportunity to build relationship this next week that our culture just hands us in a, on a silver platter in the Super Bowl. You have a Super Bowl party next, and the Niners are in it to boot. You know, it's like awesome. And if you don't like football, there's awesome commercials. They're paying so much money, they're funny. You know what I mean? And if you don't like commercials, there's guacamole. You know what I mean? It's like you just, and if you don't like that, if you're hosting, just pick a, you know, you get, you get the idea. The point is not so much those elements, it's, it's the fact that those elements allow the opportunity to develop, build relationships, neighbors, coworkers, and we can do that in community and, and together and all the rest of it. All right, our role, number one, is, is to bring, but it's also, number two, to point people to Christ. Uh, Andrew tells uh, Peter, we have found the Messiah. Philip tells Nathaniel. We have found the one the scriptures have predicted. Okay, in relationship, they are quite literally pointing people, pointing their friends, their brother, to Jesus. Excuse me. <coughs> they are pointing him. Um, there's a really interesting dynamic that is happening between Philip uh, pointing Nathaniel to Christ that I kind of want to set the context and come, come back to. So when Phil, after Philip points Nathaniel to Christ, Jesus has, an, has a really interesting interaction with Nathaniel. So when Nathaniel decides, okay, I'll check out this Jesus guy, Jesus in turn says to him these interesting words, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. I wonder if while the scripture was read, you thought, that's an interesting statement. What does it have to do with anything? Um, 
But what's, what's fascinating about that thought is there's probably a lot more going on than just Jesus miraculously saying to Nathaniel, hey, I saw you under some random fig tree when nobody is around, and I, I know you know I know you kind of deal. There's an interesting, there's more probably going on to that. Bible scholars tell us that that phrase, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, was an ancient rabbinic saying in Jesus' day to say of an individual, I know that you have a real deep love for the scriptures. Now, we don't know the, the, the whole genesis of that phrase, but it's likely that there was a practice of rabbis going under fig trees and studying the scripture there. So maybe it's cut tied to that, but regardless, it was a saying that was understood in that day of, of, when you said it of somebody, it was saying you knew that they were somebody who studied the scriptures intimately, knew them. Is that making sense? So, so Jesus is therefore saying in Nathaniel, which by the way, the rest of the scriptures also affirm of Nathaniel, that he really understood the scriptures. Are we, are we tracking that? <coughs> okay, so now go back to Philip pointing Nathaniel to Christ. Philip says to Nathaniel, hey, we have found the one Moses has talked about. We have found the one that Moses was prophesying about. Moses, just so you know, is, is attributed to have written, have written the first five books of the Bible or the Torah. What we see, therefore, is Philip was saying to Nathaniel, this guy he knew as his buddy to be somebody of the scriptures, hey, we found the one who's the Bible was predicting is the Messiah. Those scriptures that you read, we, I found the guy. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel kind of comes back with the prejudice of the day. He's like, Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? Uh, Nazareth was not known for being a good city. A couple cities in the area come to mind, but I will not say them. Um, but the idea is just this idea of, he's just like, what? How could, how could, how's that a special city? Like how? And, and what's fascinating is Philip doesn't come back. You know, you know what Philip could have said? Philip could have said, well, Nathaniel, if you really did love the scriptures like we know you, you, know, you, you so certainly do, you could know that, for instance, in places like Isaiah chapter 11, it seems to highly suggest that Messiah would come from the city of Nazareth. You would also know, oh, Nathaniel, who loves the scriptures, that there are plenty of places that speak of, prophesy of, of Messiah coming from a Galilean city, which, incidentally, Nazareth is. Philip, uh, Nathaniel, you really ought to know these things. You, Philip could have said that. But guess what? Philip was a fisherman. Chances of him knowing that kind of depth of the scriptures were like next to zero. So what did Philip say? He didn't have a big doctrinal thought. He didn't have an apologetic statement. He didn't, you know, you know what I mean? Even if his buddy kind of thought that way. Here's what Philip said when, when Nathaniel said, uh, what do you mean? What good could come from Nazareth? Philip said, and I quote, uh, come and see. Come and see. Are we letting it sink in what it means to be light of the light of the world? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take having, you know, seminary degree, having read the latest apologetic book where you can kind of give, you speak to people's objections. Is this making sense? It's just come and see. Come and check out Jesus. And we have an opportunity to do that at church. People could just come and see and make up their minds for themselves, which is the whole point anyways. We are, our role is to bring people to Christ and point in a really straightforward, non-awkward, natural way. Now let's look at God's role, which, spoiler alert, is the bigger role, okay? It's wonderful. God's role. Okay, and we see God's role in all of these groupings again with uh, John the Baptist and Andrew, named disciple, Andrew and Simon Peter, Philip and Nathaniel. There's our role 
There's also God's role. And in each case, with God's role, or Jesus, the son of God's role, is we see that Jesus takes the initiative. So John the Baptist goes, behold, the Lamb of God. Andrew says, oh, we found the Messiah. Philip says, oh, we found the one Moses has spoken to. And yet in each and every case, we see a moment where Jesus goes, now I'm going to talk to this individual. Now, in fact, it's, it's always said this way. So if you look at verse 37, 38, when the two disciples, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, heard John the Baptist say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, turning around Jesus saw them following and asked, what is it you want? Jesus took the initiative in each and every case here. There's our role, but there's, there's God's role. And, and, and what we see in God's role is God's always the one with the initiative. God meets us. He meets us. We might think that, you know, as somebody checking out the claims of Christ for ourselves, trying to figure out our spirituality and all that rest of it, let's say we end up putting our faith in Jesus, we might think that we were the main driver of all of that. Now, there's a part for us to play. I'm not trying to discount that. But at the end of the day, theologically, actually, no, it was God who was only ever drawing us to himself. Does that make sense? Or, for instance, we might think in our role of help bringing and pointing people to Jesus that we were the ones who really initiated all. No, at the end of the day, it's Jesus who is only ever using us or allowing us to be a part of the equation. God takes the initiative. It's, it's his working in our lives. He's the one who meets with us. I'm not going to read the scriptures again. I have them here, but we'll, we'll just kind of keep going for the sake of time. If you look back at last week's text, John chapter 1, you see that it was the word who made himself flesh and made his, his dwelling among us. Jesus took the step to come be with us, make his dwelling with us, make himself and his love available to us. And then Jesus elsewhere said things like, I have come to seek and save the lost. It's Jesus who seeks and saves us. It's he who meets with us. Uh, one of my favorite uh, poems that gets this idea across was by the, the 19th century um, poet Francis Thompson. Maybe some of you have heard of this. When he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Describing how God is the hound of heaven. I mean, he's the one who comes after us. He's the one who we think we're, we're following after him or eluding him or trying to whatever from him. But he's the one who's, who's coming after, after us. And he comes with the same question that he came with on that day to Andrew. What is it you want? It's the same question he's asking today. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I read this text... If I weren't studying it for a sermon, I might just read that as like a throwaway question. What is it you want? And move on. But that is a profoundly important question. And Bible scholars really kind of emphasize the point. Because what Jesus is saying there, when he says, what is it you want? That word to want is a lot more deeper than what our English ears might hear. He was saying, what is it you seek, Andrew? What is it you desire? What is it you most long for, Andrew? It's the same question he asks us of, uh, today. Underneath everything in life, what is it you, you want most of all? And the implication is clear here that Jesus came to meet our ultimate desire. Um, I don't find it coincidence that here is Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John with all the hype that's been set up through John's prologue of saying, in the word was in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. There's this big hype of Jesus coming onto the scene. I don't see a coincidence that the first words out of his mouth are, 
What is it you want? What is it you desire? Jesus came to offer, offer us the greatest desire of our hearts. Because make no mistake, of the things that we can chase after in this life as our ultimate things, of our, what we seek after, of what we really want underneath everything, it could be something like our career, you know, status, power, influence, love, intimate relationships, you know, well-being, whatever, health, whatever it might be, none of those things ultimately can, all those things will ultimately fail us in the end. But through Jesus, God offers us unconditional love made available to all, each and every one of us, such that actually also all the things of this life can then fall into the right and proper place when we receive and live in him. He meets our ultimate need. And if you're here today and you've never received that, that's the gospel. That's what the Bible literally calls the good news, that Jesus did for you what you cannot do for yourself. He came into this world to live the perfect life and then ultimately to die the death on the cross that we deserve for our sins. All the selfishness, all our lust, all our anger, all our harshness, all our pride, self-righteousness, you name it. All these ways in which we ought not to live, he came and he died in our place such that we can receive him in life in his name. That's why John, last week in verse 14, said to all who receive him, to all who believe on his name, he gives the right to become children of God. The gospel is you can today receive him as your heavenly father. You can be received as a child of God. Eternal life in him. And you do that in your heart unto him saying, I receive what you did for me on the cross, Jesus. Forgiveness of sins and I want to live this life for you. Would you help me in that? That's what it means to be a Christian, period, full stop, receiving Christ and what he's done for you by faith. And if that's you today and you want to make that decision, that's something you do between yourself and the Lord. But we would also encourage you to fill out the connection card, maybe make a note of that so we can pray for you, come alongside you in whatever way you feel comfortable. But then for those of you who have received him, how would you answer that question, what is it you want? That Jesus asks to this day, even, even of his followers, what is it you are ultimately seeking? Because here's the thing, it seems to me, as somebody who's been following the Lord for you know, a length of time, somebody who's a pastor, both in terms of my own experience, in terms of uh, walking alongside others, in terms of my understanding from scriptures and all the rest of it, here's what it seems to me. It is strikingly easy for an even longtime follower of Jesus to say, yeah, Jesus is my ultimate thing. He's the one I want above all things. But in reality, in practice, he's not at the center. Does that make any sense? He's not what we ultimately want. It is strikingly easy to say, yes, Jesus is what I really want most of all. But actually in life, practice, and reality, that's, that's not true. Here's a litmus test for you. If I were to ask you the question, what is it you really want? How would your heart answer that question? Here's a way to kind of get at how your heart might actually answer that question. If you ever get, you know, really upset, frustrated, maybe a little depressed or, or, or frustrated, whatever the word is, when that happens, ask yourself, what is it behind those feelings? Like underneath, like what is leading you to be so frustrated in that situation? Is that making sense? Because when you ask that question, chances are you'll start to begin to see perhaps the heart answer that you would have to what is it you ultimately want. Because then it's like, oh, I'm just not getting that job which I deserve. Or, oh, this is not working out with this individual or that the way it should, should and ought to be. What is it you ultimately want? What is your heart ultimately longing for? It is really easy for a Christian to say the words, Jesus. 
And yet in practice, that not really be the case. And there's, there's life in considering that question and, and, and finding, receiving Jesus and living from him being the ultimate cent, uh, center of, of your life. God's rule, as we are lights of the light of the world, is one, he meets us. And then number two, he calls us. So when Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus saying, come and see, we see in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel approach, again, Jesus taking the initiative here, and said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the, the king of Israel. Now, whether or not uh, Nathanael is just blown away again because Jesus somehow knew he was under a literal fig tree when nobody else was around and there was some prophecy moment there, or Nathanael was blown away that Jesus knew this rabbinic sa- statement was true of him, that he really intimately, deeply loved the word of God, or it was both, like Nathanael happened to be under a tree. Take, you know, we don't know, but the point is Nathanael understood enough by Jesus' words to be blown away miraculously. This guy knows me. So Jesus meets with him and then goes on to say this. You believed, Nathanael, because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, real quickly, Jesus almost certainly was referencing a part in the Bible that's found in Genesis chapter 28. A story that if Nathaniel really knew the scriptures, Nathaniel would have understood and been tracking him with. In Genesis 28, there's the vision Jacob has. Jacob, this guy who's later renamed Israel, has where he sees, he has a vision and he sees a stairway to heaven and angels ascending and descending on this stairway to heaven. Do you, do you know that story? Those of you guys who know Genesis. Jacob has this vision and, and the implication of it's clear. There's a way between heaven and earth and Jacob's just blown away. He's like, I don't know how that's possible, that's, but that's incredible. Well, Jesus now with this guy who's known for his love and passion for scripture is saying, Nathaniel, don't you see I am the stairway to heaven. I am the way. I am the way that's bridged the gap between heaven and earth. There's now a way to do that. And, man, I would have loved to have been there when Nathaniel heard those words. He probably would have had his mind blown. You know what I mean? As somebody who read the scriptures. But it's even greater for us today. Because what Jesus was saying to Nathaniel then and to us today, on this side of seeing the cross and how Jesus made the way between heaven and earth, is not only does he call us into following him, having an eternal relationship with him, he calls us into making that relationship available to those around us. That's the calling. In fact, it's worth noting that when Jesus says these words to Nathaniel, he says, very truly I tell you, he actually switches to the plural there. You all, y'all, you southern guys. Very truly I tell you all, you all, We'll see heaven open. He's talking to all his disciples. He's talking to to us today. We get to be a part of Jesus making his light of the world available to those around us. We live in an area that is so mind-bogglingly crazy in terms of the impact. You know, I, I just think about the space and time of history that we get to live here in the Silicon Valley. It's nuts. You know what I mean? In terms of human history, in terms of a lot of the things that you directly sitting out there today are working on, or we indirectly along with you as a society are working on self-driving cars. Some of you are working on self-driving planes. You know what I mean? There's, there's sustainable and renewable energy I know some of you are working on that make 
the sustainable and renewable energy that we know today look kind of paltry. Some of you are working on ways to connect us the world over in ways that even 10 years ago we couldn't have imagined, let alone 50 plus. And it's just, it's just mind-boggling the things that we get to see and be a part of as humankind here in the Silicon Valley. And yet what Jesus is saying is he's inviting us into God's eternal work. He's inviting us into helping people have a restored relationship with their heavenly Father forever because of what Christ did for them on the cross as he did for us, received by faith. Heaven's going to be a party. Heaven, in fact, Jesus regularly talked about heaven being a party in parable form, in short spiritual story form. He'd talk about heaven literally being a party and how he, we, get to send out invitations. That's what we're talking about today. As individuals, as a family, we get to join with the Lord in being lights of the light of the world. And what's incredible is we have opportunity right in front of us. We've got the second gathering coming up, which is going to be really fun. We've got the Super Bowl coming up, which is a way to just build relationships. And we get to do it together. So how would you, how would you this week, together with the Lord, how, how do you sense him calling you to join with him in being lights to his light of the world? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for making a way possible back into relationship with you. Uh, for those of us who follow you, it's so easy to take that for granted. Both in terms of our own relationship with you and the infinite gift and blessing that is, but also in terms of making it available to those around us. Forgive us for how we just get nervous or, or make it awkward or whatever it is. Help us, Father, as a church, collectively, as individuals, be the light of your light in this world. Thank you for placing us in a place like the Silicon Valley. What a gift to be here. Father, thank you for just the clear signs of you moving in and through us. Not because of us, but through your, through your work. It's, it's just been incredible to see, Jesus, see, see, see people around us put their faith in you. We pray that you do that in an even greater degree in the year and years ahead. Father, would you especially go before us as we launch a second gathering on March 3rd, our hearts hope for that is that you'd allow us to make more room for more people to hear about the love of God through Christ. Help us to be the light of the world, your light of the world, as your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.